This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Russia's war on Ukraine is continuing relentlessly in spite of a stiff groundswell of opposition from inside Ukraine. Russian forces, as of this recording, have been attacking the capital, Kyiv. Earlier, Russian forces bombed the city of Mariupol, hitting a children's hospital and maternity ward, killing helpless women and children. As Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky implores NATO to impose a no-fly zone over his nation, the question arises, what is the least destructive response to such a brutal war? My guest, legal expert Bill Blom, recently wrote, quote, when it comes to Ukraine, the jungle has overtaken the rule of law. Yet even as the carnage accelerates, there are some hopeful signs in the legal proceedings currently underway at the world's two most prominent tribunals, the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court. Bill Blum now joins me. He's a lawyer, retired judge, novelist, writer, and a lecturer at USC Annenberg School of Communications. Welcome to the program, Bill. Thank you. Thank you so much. So first, what are some of the moves at the ICJ and the ICC that you point out are both located in The Hague? Americans, unfortunately, are not familiar enough with these international modes of potential justice, but they are active. What has it been doing? What have these bodies been doing on Ukraine and saying on Ukraine and Russia? Well, the two bodies adjudicate different um, aspects of uh, situations that involve violations of international law. The International Court of Justice, otherwise known as the World Court, is the principal judicial organ of the United Nations, and it adjudicates disputes between states. The International Criminal Court adjudicates criminal charges that are brought against individuals. Both courts are active with regard to the war in Ukraine. The ICJ will be handing down a ruling on Wednesday, March 16, according to an announcement it has released regarding the application of Ukraine for what is essentially a request for a preliminary injunction to order a ceasefire in Ukraine and to order the withdrawal of Russian troops. At the same time, the International Criminal Court has undertaken an investigation of alleged war crimes and genocide regarding the issue. It's a very interesting case because it comes to the court in a kind of um, lawyerly manner uh, with Ukraine arguing that the pretext for the Russian invasion, namely genocide in the Donbas region of Ukraine in the eastern section of the country, uh, is, a, is fabricated, and that that pretext offers no justification under international law for what is now a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And the ICC's investigation is unique in the sense that 39 member states have requested the prosecutor of the ICC to initiate this investigation. Now, it's very important that people understand with regard to both world bodies that the United States does not accept the compulsory jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice, that's the World Court, the UN Court, 
nor is it a signatory to the statute, the Rome Statute, that's what it's called, that created the ICC. So we are an outlier when it comes to international law in these two very, very important respects. Russia, which was initially a signatory to the ICC, the criminal court statute, withdrew in 2016. And Russia, like the United States, does not accept the compulsory jurisdiction of the world court. Now, neither does Ukraine, but Ukraine has agreed to abide by the rulings with regard to this situation. So Ukraine is taking a very different uh, position with regard to alleged violations of international law. So my position is that if you want peace in Ukraine, which I think anyone rational does, the one of the ways you, you get there, of course, is through negotiated settlements. And one of the aspects of negotiating a peaceful resolution of these sorts of conflicts is to take the matter to court. Far better to take the matter to court than to take the matter to war. So you're saying that the uh, pretext that Russia has used for years, actually, but which it acted on now, saying that the two eastern provinces are really Russian because they're culturally Russian, there are separatists that want to join Russia, that the, uh, that these, that the ICJ is saying that that pretext itself is not valid, right? Right. Well, they, 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 you have to get before the world court on a jurisdictional basis before you can reach the merits of the case. It's similar to any kind of case you'd have in a domestic American court. And since neither Ukraine nor Russia accepts the compulsory jurisdiction, that is the overall jurisdiction of the world court, you have to get there in another way, on another jurisdictional ground. And the way that they get there in this particular case is that both Russia and Ukraine have signed the Genocide Convention that dates back to 1948. So uh, that convention says that disputes under the convention should be submitted to the world court for adjudication. That's how they get there as a legal matter. That's why it's kind of clever lawyering on the part of the uh, lawyers who are representing Ukraine to get the matter before the world court. So the first issue that the world court's going to decide is, do we actually have jurisdiction to hear this case? I suspect that they're going to say, yes, we do. And I suspect that they're going to say that the balance of harms in this case, given the overwhelming force that Russia is using, weighs in favor of the issuance of what they call provisional measures, or what we would call a preliminary injunction, which would order Russia to stop hostilities, order Ukraine to stop hostilities too, and for Russia to pull out. Now, the big question is, well, so what? What will Russia do? And everyone I talk to says, well, what good does it do? I think the answer to that is that you still have to try. You have to make a good faith effort under uh, law to impose and abide by the rule of law. If you don't do that, you have nothing left except the law of the jungle. Now, maybe that's where we're, where we're left, but not without uh, an effort to abide by the rule of law. And that's why I support these efforts. Now, the other means that uh, some feel the war could end, including Mr. Zelensky, who obviously is in the most desperate of positions, is for NATO to imply, impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Um, what do you make of that? Could that 
you know, and, and even some on the left are calling for it because, of course, the scale of atrocities is, is awful. But could that not then trigger or put NATO in the position of having to respond militarily if and when Russia violates that no-fly zone? Well, that's why this situation is so dangerous, because this involves a potential confrontation between nuclear powers. And if the U.S. imposes a no-fly zone, and I can't blame the Ukrainians for asking for that, if they do that, that will be regarded by Russia as an act of military intervention, and who knows where that will lead. So this is a very difficult situation militarily, because you're seeing that the Ukrainians are not going to give up. I think that Putin miscalculated the level of resistance. The uh, army of Ukraine is proving much more formidable than anyone had thought previously. So the idea, however, of imposing a no-fly zone so far is a no-go for NATO and the United States largely because of the threat of escalation and possible nuclear war. Bill, do you feel that the sense of a changing world from a unipolar one where the United States was you know, by far the chief superpower, the, the, the changing of that to a multipolar world, which we are increasingly living in with powers like Russia, like China imposing themselves, is really the best justification for international bodies like the United Nations, like the ICC and the ICJ, because otherwise we risk World War III. I think that that's right. I think that uh, our old way of understanding the world and international security agreements is no longer viable not in the short run or in the long run. So some sort of uh, reformation of international security agreements will have to be undertaken. This is a massive undertaking, and there will be many different international bodies involved, including the United Nations, including its judicial organ, the World Court, including any special judicial tribunals that might be set up by the world to uh, adjudicate what's gone on with this war in Ukraine. But I think that uh, we do need to reimagine the alignment of the nations of the world and try to secure a lasting peace because we don't have a lot of time to act. There is a full-on war in Ukraine and there's this whole specter of global warming and climate change hanging above us, I think the time frame within which the world needs to act and restructure itself to assure peace and a prosperous future for everybody is drawing thin. And so I'm also wondering if you think that the idea that a lot of progressives used to rely on, which is that a country's policies are to be judged by the citizens of that country and the citizens of that country should be holding their government responsible that, that even that unfortunately is not enough right now although the 
Russian people um, are protesting when they know what's actually happening in Ukraine. And there's evidence to suggest that there's a mass censorship on top of the uh, curtailment of their freedom to assemble and protest. That, you know, it, it sounds nice to say that we have to rely on the Russian anti-war movement to pull Putin back and the trust that Russian democracy will hold him accountable. But in practice, it it doesn't seem to be enough. And it wasn't enough for us here in the United States. Our anti-war movements weren't enough to stop wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's right. Uh, I think it's a really terrific question. And I think on the one hand, we need to support peace movements everywhere. On the other hand, we need to be very clear-eyed, particularly among progressives, uh, about who Vladimir Putin is and what kind of... Uh, political philosophy and behavior he represents. To my way of thinking, Putin is the leader of the global right. And the global right is a threat to democracy everywhere with a small d, not with a capital D Democratic Party. People on the left, some people, certainly not everyone, uh, seem to have a bit of cognitive dissonance involved when they confront situations where the United States might not be, in all instances, the worst actor in the room. And I think we cannot understate the dangers of the Putin regime and the awful uh, imposition of autocratic rule that it has uh, fostered within Russia. At the same time, uh, we as global citizens, I think that we have to support our own anti-war movements and lend our support to peace movements everywhere. And how people do that, what organizations they become involved with, what um, forums they attend, and if you're a writer, what kinds of articles you write, there'll be many of those. They'll, they'll be very diverse. But I think we have to rethink a lot of our underlying assumptions. And one thing I think we need to demand as Americans is that this country sign on to the Rome Statute and become a member of the ICC, and that this country rejoin the compulsory jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice, the World Court, which the Reagan administration pulled us out of in 1984-1985 when Nicaragua sued the United States. It's time for us to abandon all those scofflaw policies and attitudes and repeal this section of, the, uh, uh, of U.S. law, which actually prohibits us from cooperating with investigations of the International Criminal Court. That's what we can do uh, right here at home, make those planks part of our own peace movement. Well, Bill, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. We'll post a link to your website where you wrote about this issue and going through these uh, courts to address the Russian war on Ukraine. Thank you so much. Yes, we're at roundtable.io, Blum's Law. And we'll link to that directly. My guest has been Bill Blum. He is a lawyer, retired judge, novelist, writer, and lecturer at USC Annenberg School of Communications. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews at our website, risingupwithsonali.com. By becoming a subscriber, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.